Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams. You're listening to Teachers Talk Radio and this is the Saturday Brunch Show with me, Emma Williams, live on this murky Saturday morning. Today, I'm speaking to Ryan Wilson, author of Let That Be A Lesson, a sometimes funny, sometimes painful account of a young man's journey into and out of teaching. Live from Woking, this is the Saturday Brunch with Emma Williams on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning, teachers. How are you on this miserable day? Yep, we're more than halfway through the dreaded month of January and Kel Surprise, as they say in the UK, it is yet another miserable overcast morning with no visual confirmation of the sun. Astronomers claim it still exists, but it would be nice to have some feedback from it. At least a five minute drop in, you know, maybe a learning walk. I'm not asking for a full hour long observation with detailed written critique here, but we trudge on through the murky soup of fog and cross our fingers that the big yellow ball in the sky will make some kind of appearance at some point in 2022. But never mind, this morning I am speaking to the author of Let That Be a Lesson, a book described by trumpet fanfare, please, Jacqueline Wilson, who I assume is no relation to the author, as a delightfully frank and funny book with a very serious message. So hoping that Ryan is listening right now and that he will call in because I know he can only join me for the first half of my show. So I think we have uh, Ryan in the studio. Ryan, is that you? Uh, It's me. Can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a real absolute pleasure. Um, and like so many of my guests, I believe you're moving house this weekend. Yeah, it's if you could see what I could see, it's... <laughs> I mean, chaos doesn't really come close. Oh, my goodness. So when was your actual moving day, or is it today? It's today, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I just seem to have had this string of guests who agree to do a live show and then let me know that they're moving at the same time. <laughs> well, it's all, it's all good fun. Yeah, well, well, thank you, uh, especially given the chaos you are no doubt in. Um, so I was going to start really with what it's like to take the risk of writing a book like yours, because obviously mm. it's deeply personal for you, but also for lots of other people too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's funny, I mean, because the way it worked for me, and I, I presume for most people who, who write a book who aren't famous, um, you you start writing it assuming that nobody really else is going to read it. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't start writing thinking it's going to get published. Um, no. So... So that was that was how it was for me. As far as I was concerned, it was almost quite therapeutic writing it. It was quite, um, it, you're right, it is quite personal, but it sort of felt quite private as well at that at that stage. Um, and then it's only when 
uh, it looks like it might get published that you start to think, oh, right, probably better <laughs> have a think about <laughs> how much I'm actually prepared to say. And as, and as you say, have a think about how I will you know, protect other people's privacy as well. Mm. Yeah, and how once you, you, you got down that, that road of publication, how much support did you get from your publisher? How, how does it work? Um, yeah, they, they were, I have to say they were great throughout. Um, and we, I think we were all really aware of the duty of care over particularly children, but also other adults who might not want details of their work life or their personal life to be in a book. Um, so we, we went to quite great lengths to um, disguise people. And uh, particularly with children, we changed, you know, genders and we changed um, sort of the timeline of things. And um, particularly, if, you know, for some children, I was talking about things that were you know, their, their backgrounds having come from difficult family backgrounds or whatever. So we took extra care to make sure that they were well disguised. And then we actually had a lawyer read it as well. Um, oh. uh, and so uh, she went through it on a fine tooth comb and highlighted a few bits where she said, I, I don't think you can say this and be careful <laughs> here. Uh, and so we, we went back and changed them again. But we, I genuinely think we weren't doing it just out of a strict legal worry for being sued. We were doing it because we you know, genuinely wanted to do right by the people we were describing. Yeah, it must feel like a huge responsibility. Um, it, does, it does feel like a big responsibility, yeah. 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 And, and of course, one of the, the things that you, well, you lost two um, colleagues, mm. um, one of which in particular you were extremely close to. Mm. Um, and I, I guess you had the, the support of their family throughout. Yeah, again, w- once it became clear that it might be published, um, that was the first thing I did, really go to their families and say, look, look how do you feel about it? Have a read of it. If, if you've got any concerns or reservations, you know, I just won't proceed with it. Um, but fortunately, in both cases, um, they were, you know, pleased with how their relative was portrayed. Mm. And they saw it as a as a tribute to them, which is absolutely what I hoped it would be. Um, uh, Because, you know, it's, um, uh, I I, I just hope to convey a little of how great it was to know them and work with them. Um, And uh, I I hoped it would stand as a tribute to them. It's, it absolutely uh, came across in that way. Hmm. Um, uh, But I think, you know, it must have been, must, did, do you think it had an impact on you not wanting to stay in the profession to, to lose particularly mm. your friend Zoe uh, in the way that you did? Yeah, perhaps so, although I had changed schools by that point. Um, yeah. I, yeah, it, it, definitely, it definitely was. I mean, I think any job, it's nice. It's nicer when you have friends that you're working with, right? Um, mm. uh, and... Um, that was a particularly lovely friendship, which definitely I think meant I was didn't enjoy my job at the second school quite so much. Perhaps I think certainly that was a factor in it. I think also um, as you move up um, through management levels, I find that less enjoyable than <laughs> being a classroom teacher, to be honest. Um, but so there, I think there are a number of factors. But yeah, I think you're probably right. That was that was one of them. Yeah, because of course you you became the head of. English, which I always mm. think is one of the toughest gigs in, in town, um, and quite early, wasn't it? Only after about mm. five five years, yeah. you became head of English. Yeah, maybe in hindsight, too early. Um, 
and it was it's one of those things where it was a big department there was 20 teachers and i was moving school so i was coming in as the new head of english um and it's a funny thing isn't it when you when you when you come in in the management position um because the dynamics are just funny and you want to prove yourself you have to prove yourself and earn their trust and respect um but it's not always very easy to make friends in that in that circumstance um indeed yeah uh and I, I certainly felt that. And that was a real difference between starting as an NQT um, at my first school and starting at the second school in management. It's, it's a very different thing, I think. Yes. And <laughs> something you write very wittily about is teachers behaving badly. Um, and frankly, may I say, being less mature than the kids. <laughs> well, yes. I, I think that's fair. You know, um, yeah. It's funny, uh, isn't I'm, it? I'm thinking of the plain old Fanny chapter, for example. <laughs> well, that, that doesn't, paint, doesn't paint me in the best light, that story. <laughs> for, for people who haven't read it, this is Ryan and another male colleague basically oh, getting dear. the giggles during a verbal assessment with a child. <laughs> well, I know, because a character in a book was called Fanny. I mean, it's absolutely <laughs> pathetic. But it's, it's also, um, you know, it's... Um, I write a chapter about staff meetings where teachers rushing for the back, you know, yep. um, mm-hmm. talking through the meetings, uh, passing notes. Yeah, um, while the head's talking. While the head's talking. I, I went to Spanish lessons while I was a teacher in the evening in, in night class. And I became like an annoying year 10 boy. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I'd arrive late and, um, and the teacher would be like, have you got your homework? I'd be like, no, I've been really busy. I haven't got a pen either. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? <laughs> um, it's funny, isn't it? I'm sure there's something very deeply sort of psychological going on where, you know, all the things that irritate you during the day <laughs> come out in the evening. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? But do you, I think teachers are like that. Do you, is that your experience? Oh, definitely, yes. <laughs> and I, 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 well, I actually don't think you'd survive as a teacher if you didn't have quite a juvenile sense of humor as well because yeah. i think yeah i mean just to get young yeah. people i mean yeah. obviously sometimes you think oh for god's sake when they're laughing at something but i think you have to get it on some level even if, even if you're not in the mood yeah i think that's can, right you can understand it um, yeah i think that's right uh, how, I, something i cannot wait to ask you about is how on earth you ended up taking some kids to see avenue q oh good grief (laughs) (laughs) oh for goodness sake well i think you didn't quite realize what it was did you yeah no that's right i had this lovely top set year 10 and and for various reasons they had a bit of a tough time and changes of staff and anyway uh there's there's another top set year 10 that was being taught by my friend claire and they'd been we said it to each other in the staff room one day, we should really do something nice for them because they've had a really tough time, our, our two year 10 classes. And Claire said, oh, we could put them into the Globe and go and watch some Shakespeare, you know? And uh, mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, we could do. A bit boring. <laughs> we could- <laughs> <laughs> I've heard about this great show called Avenue Q, which apparently is brilliant. Um, let's take them to see that. It's puppets. It's funny puppets. And we thought, Wait. Claire was like, are you sure we shouldn't go to the Globe? And I was like, oh, let's go and see Avenue Q. It's meant to be really funny. So she was like, okay. So um, then in, in between us, we got all the kids signed up, got their, got their money in. And in between us taking the kids, uh, I, I, I went to see it myself. 
Mm-hmm. And I just sat through it and thought, we've booked kids in to see this. It's so <laughs> rude. What? This is absolutely awful. There's like a, there's a puppet sex scene and everything. So, so I had this panic. We had to go back and write to them all and say, uh, you might, you know, it's probably it's slightly adult content. You, you might we'll give you your money back if you don't want to come. Of course they all came. <laughs> and of course they all loved it. But, but there was a moment in the middle of it where Claire just looked at me and was like, I wanted to go and see, you know, much ado about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> this is on you. And it was. But, you know, it was it was all fine in the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the book really sort of reads to me like a series of anecdotes from... Mm. Obviously, it's chronological. You go through entering the profession and then, uh, you know, close on yeah. on leaving it. But it is a sort of it's a lovely read. I mean, you, it, it's something that you could read in uh, in short bursts because yeah. you divide it into these lovely chapters with with title. I love the titles. I love the fact that they're not numbered; they're titled. And, <laughs> um, so it's yeah, it's uh, it's one of those books that you can dip into. Mm. Um, uh, another uh, the Avenue Q one stuck in my mind, and um, I'd also like you to tell listeners about how you ended up telling the mother of a student that you teach, who is also a colleague or was also a colleague, uh, that her son was enjoying a bit of incest. Uh, these situations, <laughs> honestly, I don't know how I get myself into these situations. Uh, yeah, I was new to the school. I was an NQT. I was new to the school, and I was teaching this year ten class and. Um, we were doing the play by uh, Arthur Miller, A View from the Bridge. And they're sort of quite a rowdy class. And um, I don't know if you know the play or people listening. I taught play. it years ago, actually. Yeah, I used you? to teach it in my previous school. Yeah, It's, it's, a, great, it's a great play. It um, is, yeah. And you've got Willie Loma. Uh, no, you've got Eddie, the longshoreman, and uh, his niece, Catherine. And um, the, the, the there's the slightest suggestion of kind of... Uh, uh, incestuous relationship between them. And of course, the class went mad for this. They absolutely were, you know, stamping their feet and banging the desks. And, um, uh, you know, they loved, they loved this suggestion. And then a, a few days later, uh, this math teacher came up to me in the canteen and said, oh, I think you teach my son. He's really enjoying your, he's really enjoying the lessons. And I was trying to just explain that, you know, they're just, in, they're, they're enjoying the play we're doing. But what I said was, uh, um, I think it's just that uh, he, the play's got a bit of incest in it, and I think that's what that's what he likes. And, and there's just this moment after you said it where you think, I've just told the boy's mother that he likes incest. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then we, we were walking on the corridor, and we just came to the end of the corridor, and that was I couldn't even say anything else to her. So. This poor woman who'd been teaching at the school for years just went away, having spoken to her son's English teacher for the first time, and all I'd said to her was that, by the way, your son's into incest. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that still haunts me at night sometimes, that conversation. You know, things that just come back to you in the middle of the night, and that conversation is one of them. It is the sort of thing, though, that that can only happen in our job, and I think Yeah, yeah. You yeah. just yeah, and we've all got a, a, a list of, of things that I I have a list of things, you know, that you wouldn't say in any other job. So <laughs> yeah. I think one of my favourites was nobody should have been throwing bananas in the first place. <laughs> which is sort of overheard that I heard a colleague say. You sort of think you wouldn't get to say that in a law firm. No, <laughs> no, no it's true. It's true. And you know, I, I, teaching is just one of the things I love about it is that um Every day there are things that are 
weird or uh, brilliant or funny or disastrous or mm. you know this it's not dull is it it's not, it's not dull no this is very true <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's it's one of the joys dull. of it I think mm. so it sounds like the school you started you began your training in 2005 at a school in the fens with mm. Uh, uh, what is euphemistically described as challenging behaviour, <laughs> yeah. um, and you describe as fights, bullying, and general thuggery. <laughs> um, so that must have been quite a baptism of fire. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Especially because uh, you know, I also always wanted to be a teacher, and um, mm. you know, uh, it's terribly embarrassing to admit, but you know, played school when I was a child and made worksheets and taught pretend pupils and I'd really 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 wanted to be a teacher never really yeah, wanted to do anything else and your father was a teacher is that right and my dad yeah he, he taught music um in the secondary school um so, so how yeah, did you maintain an idealized <laughs> idea well, of teaching as a child is that the thing yeah he I mean he would you know tell me lots of stories about it and sort of try and gently put me off and <laughs> so would lots of people including all my teachers <laughs> throughout uh, secondary school but it, you know, it was just, I, I wouldn't be deterred from it. I, it was absolutely what I wanted to do and, and didn't want to do anything else. So so it had it had a lot to live up to when I actually walked through the doors of that school um, in mm. the Fens. Uh, and I think, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe maybe some of us do this, maybe it was just me, but um, in my head, I had sort of envisaged that I would walk into this rubble, um, <clears throat> do a few, you know, an hour of, Shakespeare with them and they'd realize the error of their ways and uh, you know, yeah. uh, the scales would fall from their eyes and they would um, just be really into Shakespeare uh, and it tur- turns out it's not that easy is it? No. So <laughs> um, obviously there's the moment where they all stand on their desks and shout oh captain my captain. Yeah. So yeah there had to be a certain tempering of the of the idealism Um but, but what I still think about teaching is that although those moments don't happen, uh, they certainly don't happen every day, and sometimes it feels like they don't happen at all. Um, the moments where you do inspire somebody, or where you do cut through, or they, you know, in, they 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 tell you that they've enjoyed reading something, those are the moments that make it really special, aren't they? And they're all the more special because they don't happen all the time. Mm. Yeah. Do you think um, something I was going to ask you about? Because you describe a couple of experiences that I think I, I've, I've often thought: How would it be if I were entering the profession as a as a male mm. rather than as a woman? Mm, and you had um, <clears throat> one very obviously very disturbed child who threatened to say that you touched her inappropriately mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that primary setting. Mm-hmm. And I, it, see, I, I often my blood runs cold for male colleagues. It really does because I think you do face that mm. that pressure and that that fear yeah. yeah yeah and it's a very difficult thing isn't it because um absolutely the child must be believed mm. uh, and um the thought of somebody making an accusation um and it not and it being true and it not being believed is 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 just too awful to comprehend um but yet, on the other hand, you're right that you are vulnerable to yeah. accusations. Um, and it, it did happen to me that time with, um, with a little girl, a primary school age girl. And it happened to me uh, one, one other time um, in my career as well. And it, you feel very exposed and very 
vulnerable and I was just fortunate that I had had teachers who were sensible and proportionate and listened and were able to interview witnesses and um, you know um, realize that nothing had happened and that, that the, in, in both cases these girls were disturbed for various reasons um, but it's a very difficult it's a very difficult situation it's something that I'm sure all all male teachers feel quite acutely. Mm. Um, but yeah. there's also a thing. There's also a story I tell in the book about um, um, a parents' evening where I was a tra- I was a trainee and sitting with the female teacher who'd been teaching for years and years and years. And at that parents' evening, as the kids came and sat opposite us one by one, I just noticed that almost every parent was talking to me. <laughs> And, um, mm. uh, and assuming that I was the teacher and that the, the female teacher was the was the trainee, uh, and you know it was extraordinary. And one and one father actually said uh, said, "Well, and what about you, love?" To the female teacher, "Are you are you learning?" Mm. <laughs> and um, that's the other side of it, isn't it? That, that I, even in this profession, which is perhaps seen as nurturing and and um, female oriented, um, there was a sexism that people assumed the male was the was the one to speak to, even though I didn't know what I was doing and had been in the school for about ten minutes. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, I, I found that absolutely extraordinary. I tried to think if I'd ever be if I'd ever felt that, but mm. then I thought actually, um, for whatever reason, I think I've only ever had one or two male trainees. Um, they've almost always been female, so I haven't sort of had. Like had the dy- yeah. often had the dynamic of yeah, a, yeah. a man yeah. sitting next to me who is junior to me. So, um, um, but it's, ha- it's happened once, twice, and I don't, I don't remember that ever happening. Yeah, um, it does yeah. seem pretty extraordinary. Like yeah. in a profession that's dominated by women. I know, I know, Just, <laughs> I know. <laughs> very odd. Um. Yeah. So, um, so one of the stories that I thought my goodness um because uh, obviously you have worked in some some tough schools mm. um and once on duty um there was when you were on duty there was a stabbing in yeah. one of the schools yeah this was um when i was working in a, in a school in inner london um and it was in a part of london where there were gang tensions as there are in a lot of inner cities Mm. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, just, uh, we, the SLT at that time had, had walkie talkies and it just came over the walkie talkie. Could staff come to the car park? And, um, and there was a kid there who'd been, who'd been stabbed. Uh, and I still find it quite shocking. And I think, you know, it's probably good to still find it quite shocking. Um, yeah, but one of the interesting things about it was that, and one of the things I learned certainly in SLT is that these things are never black and white, are they? There is, um, as it transpired, the the kid who did the stabbing was actually kind of a victim himself. He was being set upon by some other guys, and it was just that he was carrying the knife. That's how it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a black boy, um, and you know, it was it was very difficult discussing how we would deal with that actually because you, you think well that's a clear case of um he should be he should, the kid who did the stabbing should be um 
expelled. And that is what happened in the end. But actually, there was quite a discussion. His dad turned up at the school and was like, you know, he wasn't the aggressor, which, which he wasn't really in the first instance. Um, and saying, you, you know what his future will look like if he's expelled from school um, uh, as a black boy in, in this part of London. And he's right, you know, that the, the stats tell that story. And so actually it ended up being quite a, quite a in-depth discussion about what we should do. Um, but at the end of the day, we, 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 and I think rightly came down on the side that there has to be a red line in the sand of, sorry, a line in the sand or a red line of um, if you bring a knife to school that you, you can't, you can't come back to school. And that's what we decided. Um, yeah. But it, not easy decisions. Those, I think. No. And again, you know, I, I'm not SLT and I don't have to make that call and, and stand by it, which is of course, one of the huge burdens of, mm. of actually um, being in that position. And, and it was it in the same school where you had um, students that were intercepted on their way to Syria. Mm. Gosh. Yeah, that's right. Um, Again, very difficult um, yeah. school to to deal with, and there was a lot of press interest. That that was the most difficult yeah. thing. That there were, you know, TV crews outside and um, journalists everywhere, and they actually ended up camping outside the house of one of the kids involved and putting letters to the letterbox, offering to pay them to tell their story. And there was a lot of speculation that they may have been radicalised at school. Um, Yes, because uh, it all got confused with decisions yeah. that you just made about the multi-faith yeah. prayer room being supervised. Is that is that right? I yeah, exactly. A group of Muslim kids had come to us and said, can we have a space in the school that we can use to pray? Uh, and we'd agreed. Uh, and they all got a bit confused. Yeah, there was just the sort of suggestion that maybe this is where the radicalisation had happened. It subsequently transpired it wasn't. It had happened through family friends. But, um, yeah, the whole incident was... Um, difficult and unpleasant and sad, really. And it was it was it was um, straight A straight A students. Um, yes, that that um, I remember you saying in the book that it, it was people yeah. particularly shocked about one of the the students that yeah. was sort of you know on track for university. And... Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's sad. You know, he ended up um, having to go elsewhere and, and finish his A levels. But at least, I mean, at least he was. And in a way, the key thing is that he was um, safe and was and was brought back and could begin a sort of a, a de-radicalization program. Hmm. But these are, you know, all these are things that you don't. I didn't feel prepared for <laughs> for dealing with in SLT. I mean, I don't know how to deal with these things. <laughs> um, and it's it, it, it's probably a truism of teaching, isn't it, that we end up doing so much else other than teaching <laughs> things hmm. that we haven't been trained for or prepared for. Um, and that was certainly something that I felt was outside my comfort zone. But there's so many things we end, you know, we end up running budgets, don't we? And um, and doing management things and um, counselling often, and there's so many things we do in our job that we're not really trained to do, but we do our best with. Yes, and in, I mean, I guess it it is kind of related that um, I was really struck by what you called corrosive thinking. Mm. Um, that one of the things that seems to have driven you out of the profession mm. is this sort of the, the the grinding wheels of doing what Ofsted want, that, that mm. kind of thing. And and there was a um I think your team was discussing holding a minute silence for the victims mm -hmm. of a terror attack. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, Oh yeah, because uh, 
you know, Ofsted really like that kind of thing. And I think that that seems to have sort of sown a seed in you of mm. of, of depression of, uh, with the whole thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a, it's a slightly complicated thing to try and explain. I've, I've tried to explain it in various places over the last few months that you can still love teaching, and I still do love teaching, um, but also be very frustrated with and sometimes hate being a teacher <laughs> and, mm. um, and all the stuff that comes with it, particularly the pressure from Ofsted, which I think I think is damaging and corrosive to the whole system. And the, we're at a stage, certainly in the school I was working at, where the tail was just absolutely wagging the dog. And we were doing so much for Ofsted rather than because it was the right thing for the kids that we were looking after. And that's what I find particularly um, tough. And, you know, the pressure on exam results and the stuff we put the kids through of endless revision sessions and, you know, preparing them and going through exam papers, getting them to pass exams rather than to love the subject or have a deep uh, understanding of it. And, and like you said, that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back where somebody was like, let's hold a minute silence to remember these victims of the terrorist attack because... Ofsted would love to see that and you just think no let's do it because it's the right thing to do mm. um and so those things I find very frustrating and they were probably the main reason why why I um, decided to take a break from teaching but um it, it's, it's slightly it's a slightly complicated thing to try and explain to people that you can you can still love it and hate aspects of it at the same time <laughs> mm. no I mean I, I certainly know more than one person who's who's left citing similar reasons and saying mm. I still like the the job of teaching but I don't I don't like all the the politics I suppose is, yeah is exactly of looking at it um exactly was what about workload was that a factor for you and if so what what aspects were the problem yeah workloads I mean yes I think we all know that the teacher's workload is insane um I find that I taught for 10 years. and I did find that by 10 years in, I had a better handle on it. Um, certainly when I started off, I remember working long into the evenings. Um, but there was just one day, and it was, actually that was to do with uh, losing Zoe, my, my, my colleague, uh, to cancer. Where you just think, I remember this really clearly, one day following that, just thinking, gosh, um, life's short, isn't it? And I'm not sure I want to spend all my time, all my evenings working. So I just made a rule that day, and I did stick to it, where I'm just not going to work past 6 o'clock. Mm. Um, and um, I'm not going to take work home. And actually, once that became a hard and fast rule, <laughs> um, then everything had to fit around that. And um, that's something I occasionally, you know, when I'm talking to teachers uh, who are new to the profession or whatever, do suggest to people that you just have an absolute hard and fast rule. And it seems like you can never do it. But when it just becomes the law, <laughs> then... You know, stuff just has to find time to fit around it, and that's that. And mm. um, I find that I find that helpful um, uh, because you know you just have to decide what you want your life to be like, don't you? And I didn't want my life to be working all the time. I I completely agree, and I think with any job where it potentially expands to fill the space yes, available, exactly. you you do you have to put those parameters on it and and make some rules for yourself, whatever yeah. those are, whether it be. I don't take work home, I don't work weekends, I don't yeah. work beyond this time. Yeah. You have to get used to good enough, don't you? Well, well, well that's it. And ultimately, um, I, I, 
absolutely stand by that. I think you're a better teacher for having for not having given your whole life and all your free time to it. You're, you're fresher. You're you know, I, and ultimately you're you're more likely to stay in the in the job. And that's mm. you know, it's um, but it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because it's so easy to get into a kind of a competitive who's working hardest, who's doing the most um, mentality, mm. and um, I just think stepping back from that is is healthy. Oh yeah, I think it's a terrible profession for that, and I, and I think we it's very important that that stops. Um, yeah. It's almost like like you say, sort of bragging, you know, how how tall. And I think it, I think English teachers are the worst, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, because yeah. your marking load is enormous yeah but again it almost becomes a sort of badge of honor doesn't yeah. it yeah <laughs> yeah exactly, oh, exactly look that. at this enormous exactly, exactly. i was up till three o'clock in the morning i know, I know martyr mentality and yes and creating powerpoints was the other thing i remember colleagues you know always talking about how long she spent on powerpoints and, and i and i'm i'm not really i i started training slightly before powerpoints were really a were really a thing um and it's funny I, I um rarely use PowerPoint really when I'm when I'm teaching and mm. <laughs> younger teachers look at me like, What? How can you teach like a PowerPoint? <laughs> um but yeah, I I I um I uh, I do remember a competitive the amount of time you put into your PowerPoints being competitive as well. <laughs> yeah, which is of course crazy I and mean, there's plenty of people that, that mm. say it's it's bad for bad for teaching mm. that, it, that it actually isn't it's a business tool and, and isn't isn't useful now I, I mean re- in relation to workload I've got to ask you about Ulrika mm. <laughs> the Swedish relaxation guru I think yeah. it sums up that story to me sums up everything that's wrong with the whole well-being <laughs> thing I've, I've had a couple of those things and I know I'm an old cynic but really how is that supposed to happen yeah. I mean, it came from a good place. This is while we were uh, training as teachers. And um, the, I think there is a tough, well, there's lots of tough parts of the training year, but I think this was kind of November. Christmas is still quite far away. Days are it's cold, short days, and you're traveling miles to your placement school. And, and our tutor in the in uni said, I've got a treat for you. We've organized this <laughs> relaxation session. And there's just this woman Ulrika in in this little dance studio in this luridly colored leotard uh, <laughs> <laughs> help supposedly helping us to relax and getting us into all sorts of positions on the floor and deep breathing and um and her you know she spoke English with such a heavy accent and honestly I just find the whole thing so funny and um by the end you know once you catch somebody's eye in that situation where you're like on all fours and meant to be breathing deeply um and you catch somebody's eye and honestly um we you know just it just went south because everybody was just laughing so much <laughs> in a way in a way it was relaxing and fun but probably not in the way that Ulrika or the tutor intended. <laughs> yes. So the fact that everyone had, had hysterics was, was probably not the intention, but um... not the intention. But yeah, you're right. It's it's you know, it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> yes. I think a, a few years back, um, our school brought in a masseur. Um, so we were and it was supposed to sort of sit in the staff room and have our soul, shoulders massaged. But, and I just, just are, you, are you kidding me? I cannot think of anything that would make me feel more tense and uptight than that. I just, oh no. Um, Especially the staff room being watched by yeah. everybody. Oh, I know. 
know. I think I think just... in most cases, if you know, if um, if management teams want to know what could help, in most cases the answer is just give us a bit more time, isn't it? Just <laughs> give us give us a morning a morning to do some marking, or you know, just... cancel a meeting. That, yes, that, exactly. That, that yeah. would absolutely be what would help. Yeah, I think I think they're slowly beginning to realise that. <laughs> <laughs> that that might be the way forward rather than than these little add-ons. Yeah. Um, one of the things you also talk about, which really made me laugh, because uh, my husband always says this, being uh, married to me, mm. is that as a teacher, you're a minor celebrity, um, <laughs> especially because I live in the village where I work. So wow. Wow. he says it is like being married to a celebrity. <laughs> um, but you... You were stopped and searched, and that was witnessed yeah. by some kids. Is that right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I was teaching this little town in Essex, and um, I'm from Northern Ireland originally, and I had some Northern Irish banknotes in my pocket that are difficult to use in England. And I was trying to get them changed in the post office, and unbeknownst to me, there was the police were looking for some Irish person for a money laundering thing. <laughs> so, so, so the woman in the post office thought that. She'd struck gold and this big time criminal had walked into her post office. So I left the post office and a few minutes <laughs> later, this police van pulled up and I was surrounded by all these police officers and they did this stop and search. And, and they said, you know, have you got anything on your, on your person that you should tell us about? And I was like, oh, I have got 250 pounds of Northern Irish banknotes. I remember the guy saying, it's not looking good, is it, sir? <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, Looking up and seeing all these sick formers just watching their teacher getting, uh, getting, getting, you know, patted uh, down. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's just a, just another moment of humiliation to add to the list of many that uh, occurred in my time in teaching. <laughs> 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 you have to laugh at these things, don't you? So tell me what what you're you're doing now. Did, did so you left the profession? Yeah. And then what, what... What does life hold for you from now on? Yeah, I sort of reluctantly left the profession. Um, as I say, still loving teaching, but um, sort of a bit fed up with the nonsense that, that goes with it. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, will ha I will go back to the job at some point, but um, I went back to university and, and studied um, for a master's in, in broadcasting. And I actually work in, in radio now. Um, for the BBC. Oh, wow. um, so yeah, it's been a bit, of, a bit of a shift. Although sometimes I say the two jobs aren't that different because you're in radio and in teaching, you're trying to explain complex things to an audience of people who aren't that interested <laughs> <laughs> and probably aren't even really listening. Uh, so what? <laughs> not, not the case on this show, of course. I can tell you they're hanging on my every word, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's you know that's 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 been the the pivot. But I get to do lots of reporting on education stories, and I write a lot about education, and um, and I, I really enjoy it. But I do I miss the buzz of the classroom. I have to say, there's nothing I think that can quite um, replicate that really. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, you close the book talking about how many teachers leave the profession within their mm. first five years. You do, yeah. you know, make that one of your final points and mm -hmm. I, it's something that worries me mm -hmm. hugely yeah. for, for the profession that we've we've got to address it oh absolutely it's it's a scandal and um you know how many um kids have missed out on being taught by a brilliant teacher because they've left the profession mm. and um i just think why isn't the government trying to do more to retain the teachers it's got and 
I don't think it would even take that much to convince people like me to stay. Just reform Ofsted, lower the stakes a little bit, um, you know, act act on workload, um, have a you know, think about ways to make people feel valued. Um, I, I don't think it would take much to kind of turn things around and and stem the tide, but nobody seems to be that interested in doing it. Yeah, there's a lot more interest in in recruitment than retention. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of money poured into recruitment campaigns. Absolutely, but you could stop all that. You know, the need yeah. for all that um, by uh, by just trying to keep good teachers who are there and experienced and know what they're doing, trying to keep them in the job. Mm, yeah, and it, and I do think it links back to what I think we need to address it as a profession as well. I don't think it's just the government's responsibility or even. No, I mainly agree. their responsibility I think it's something we need to be talking about I'm really passionate about anyone I mentor or, or train mm -hmm. you know saying you are no good to the kids if you are wiped out and, and burn out within oh, five years that's, that isn't that is no you know you can be teaching the best lessons in the world but if you kill yourself and, and move and, and leave within five years because you're so exhausted and overworked um well then you're no good to them are no, you? absolutely um, and um but head teachers need to be saying that. Leadership teams need to be saying that to their staff. Yeah. What you said earlier, good enough is good enough. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think you, you just can't be a perfectionist and be a, a teacher, really. Um, or if no. you are, I think you have to unlearn that pretty quickly. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think there's setting yeah. high standards, but perfectionism is a, is a dreadful yeah. burden. Absolutely. And, um, and sometimes your lessons will be a little bit middle of the road and they'll be functional, um, and they'll be fine, and that's okay. And um, mm -hmm. I just think too many leadership teams um, promote kind of the pursuit of the all singing, all dancing lesson every time, and that's not realistic, and that's how people burn out, I think. I think that's getting better. I mean, of course, you, you left in, in sort of 2016, mm, is that yes. right? I, I, it is getting better. I think there's been a, a tangible shift away from... What makes an outstanding? I mean, God, in the bad old days, you remember, you remember when Ofsted, where there were seven points, like excellent yes. down to God knows what it was, I don't yeah, know. And yeah. I remember being selected for an interview with Ofsted, which was a big mistake on my head teacher's part. Um, and <laughs> I remember at one point saying to him, well, can you, can you define for me what an excellent lesson is? And with a, with a glint of joy in his eye, he said, I, it's impossible. It just sends a tingle down your spine. Oh, for goodness sake. And I thought, you know what? Forget it. You know, if that's your answer, it sends a tingle down my spine. Um, and you're also saying that's what we should all be aspiring to eight times a day. I was in a grammar school where we had eight lessons a day. I, uh, I mean, the kids would be exhausted. Never mind us. No, it's a, non it's a nonsense, isn't it? Um, it really is. And like you say, you can have high standards, but you can also think, yeah, just a little bit of pragmatism. <laughs> 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 and acknowledgement that you know and it's interesting since i've left teaching uh and i'm working in a different job um what people mean in my new job when they say they're busy and what teachers mean are just two completely different things i mean i have not really? known busyness like when you're a teacher uh and a, and a full full-on day when you're a teacher is like you know it's like i remember having days with no free periods where you go from registration right through to waving the kids off without a second to yourself and you just get on the treadmill and come off it at the end and 
I'm barely even aware of what's happened in between in my case. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, the, the, the work, the, the workload and the, and just the, just the busyness of it is um, like nothing I've experienced in any other line of work. I think that's true. And I think it's something again, that I think senior leaders are getting better at. And I like to try and remind them of it on a regular basis. Because mm-hmm. yeah. you know? obviously one of the things about moving into leadership is you yeah. don't have those days to that's the right. same extent. And mm-hmm. uh, right. it's easy to forget what it's like to be on. I mean, I look at some colleagues' timetables and I don't know how they do it. I, I honestly mm-hmm. don't because mm-hmm. they have so many of those days in a row. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, I, d- I don't know how you get through the week. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And they're any good to your families or your friends or people you're seeing at the weekend, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's very true. Well, I, I'm, I'm very conscious that you, you set me a time limit and I'm, I'm pushing it uh, right now. No, um, but I, 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 I have to ask you my final question. I, yeah. This is just my favourite bit of the book. How did Assad get the idea that Carol Ann Duffy <laughs> had a torrid lesbian affair with Margaret Thatcher? <laughs> How did that happen? This is another one of those stories that only happens in teaching. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I had been teaching the poetry of Carol Ann Duffy to this class. Um, And we'd done one of her love poems. And one of the kids had said, who was she writing this poem to? Who was the bloke she was writing this poem to? And I'd said, well, why are you sure she's writing it to a bloke? As it happens, um, she's in a relationship with a woman. And again, this has caused a little bit of a ripple, as you can, da, da, da. as you can imagine. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and that was all. That was all fine. And um, the next year, year later, this kid, as I'd run, who had been in that class, ran up to me in the corridor and said, "Oh, sir, sir, I see that fat lesbian that you taught us about died." And it's one of those things where I mean, you just, I mean, you just stop and think, what? on earth are you talking about i mean i i literally cannot process what you're talking about at all uh and it was but it was the day after margaret thatcher had died i said are you talking about margaret thatcher azad and he was like yeah yeah the fat lesbian poet and i was like okay okay let's quite a lot to do here uh <laughs> <laughs> so i explained as patiently as i could that uh Margaret Thatcher had been the first female prime minister that, as far as we know, she was not a lesbian uh, and that the poet was Carol Ann Duffy, a separate person. And, you know, I, I thought he'd understood all this and it finally made sense in his head and he went to walk off on the corridor. And as he went, he said, oh, I get it, I get it now, sir. So Carol Ann Duffy was dating Margaret Thatcher who died. You're like, oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how these two have become entangled in your head, but anyway, there we go. We don't always understand how kids think different things, do we? No, I mean, I, I, it, it, it's an absolute mystery how he <laughs> made that connection. But it's that thing where I, I'm sure every teacher has experienced this, where you explain something, you think you've explained it really clearly, you think the kids have absolutely got this, and it's only when you get their work in or when you ask them a question. Uh, you realise, no, <laughs> no, that, yeah. that, that has not been clearly understood. <laughs> yes. I know, our, for example, the RE department in our school decided to stop teaching two world religions at the same time because they just mixed them up. So you get, they got very confused. I think they taught Islam and Christianity and then that, that like kids just merged, including Muslim 
children who seem to just, despite <laughs> being a member of that faith, got very confused. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a funny thing. <laughs> well, thank you so much for Ryan for uh, giving me some of your time, despite being amongst what, what, what are you off to do now? Empty some boxes? Yeah, empty some boxes, yeah. Um, shepherd some boxes into different rooms, yeah. <laughs> uh, I place a bet on how long those boxes will stay full. I think everyone has got at least one box that they never unpack until they <laughs> yeah, exactly. move the next time. <laughs> yeah, that's what spare rooms are for, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, and attics and lofts and cellars. and yeah. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. Nice to speak to you on a Saturday morning. Oh, thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you. And I'm going to look forward to playing some clips from your book in the second half of my show. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, what an absolute pleasure to speak to Ryan. And as promised, I am going to uh, return to his book uh, after the news and us hearing from our sponsors. And I'm going to play you, with his permission, um, two or three short clips from his own reading um, of his, the audio version of his book. Um, so don't go away. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full, free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Israel National News website reports on comments made by UK Education Minister Nadim Zahawi that UK universities must adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. Mr Zahawi stated that the definition is essential, not optional, and that it is a way of telling everyone, students and staff, that anti-Semitism has no place anywhere. During the Holocaust Educational Trust's Lord Merlin Rees lecture, Mr Zahawi said he was not going to ease up until we see everyone fall into line on this. He also acknowledged that old hatreds were beginning to rear up again and that it was, therefore, essential to keep speaking up about the Holocaust. He pledged continued government support for the Jewish community, saying that British Jews and Jewish students who were the victims of anti-Semitism on British campuses 
should not be left to combat anti-Semitism on their own. In the Channel Island of Guernsey, face coverings will no longer need to be worn in classrooms from next week. The coverings will remain compulsory in communal areas for both staff and students in secondary and post-16 settings. Nick Hines, Director of Education, told ITV News, the move signals further positive steps as we will all seek to return to a more normal education experience. The move echoes changes to rules around face coverings in parts of the UK. In England, however, Boris Johnson has had to issue a statement telling secondary schools to follow the latest guidance after some headteachers said they would encourage their students to keep wearing masks despite the change of government advice. Many school leaders have pointed to the Department for Education's advice, updated on Thursday, that states that a nursery, school or college might advise you that face coverings should temporarily be worn in communal areas or classrooms. Schools in Wales will retain face coverings for another month. In Rwanda, university researchers are being asked to help combat climate change. Researchers are being called upon to come up with proposals that could inform policy on long-term climate change adaptation. Areas of research could include soil management and agroforestry, soil and water engineering, environmental management and natural resource management. Juliette Cabra, the Director General of the Rwanda Environment Management Authority, who are working with the University of Rwanda and the Higher Education Council, said, the programme seeks to enable the country to make informed policy decisions about long-term climate change adaptation. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week Steve has lost his voice. So I am going to take a look at visualising in the classroom. Before I begin, this is not about which product is best and comparing brands and features. This is about what you need to consider to make the best choice for your school or department. Visualizing in the classroom, in my opinion, is getting something that will be difficult to see into a format that a whole class can see more easily. This may be a live moving image or a still image. Also, it may be projected onto a large screen or cast out to multiple devices. The whole idea is it makes something small more accessible. The list of devices that can do this is huge, but they fall, roughly, into three categories. Visualizers, document cams and webcams. What is the difference? In sport, the definition of fitness is the ability to cope with the environment around you. When you are purchasing a device, this is what you need to consider. Don't just buy one because someone else uses it and says it's amazing. Their environment may be totally different to yours. The factors that are going to affect your purchase are cost, size, software, portability, features, and what you already have in terms of audio-visual equipment. Lighting is sometimes overlooked and depending on what you are capturing can make a huge difference. Starting with the most expensive option, the visualizer. Generally, classroom visualizers come with a large footprint meaning they take up a lot of desk space. They tend to have a high-quality downward-facing camera, lighting built-in top-down and even sometimes a backlit bed. They tend to allow control from the unit so there will be little or no need to move away from the device to operate. This may be useful if a lot of time is spent using the device or furniture obstructs movement. A lot of visualizers are also standalone, meaning they work independently of your computer. However, additional software can be installed to further augment the experience. Document cameras tend to be less expensive, have a smaller footprint and be more portable compared to visualizers. However, they usually have less features and need a computer to use them. Although they are plug-and-play, there is normally additional software available that will provide the ability to capture still and moving images, zoom in and out like a visualizer, but normally control is via the computer it is attached to. Generally, they do not feature built-in lighting, but tend to have a built-in microphone. The cheapest option, the webcam, is plug-and-play and may have additional software. However, the previous devices are designed for projecting something desk-based to an audience. The webcam is designed to work in a different way, but can be more versatile, especially if you move rooms frequently. You need a computer to plug it into. Some come with flexible arms and a base you can plug it into, but like the document cam, they are restricted by the length of the USB cable. 
Now we have an idea of what the devices are capable of. The next question is what do you already have? Do you have an interactive board? If so, imaging a pupil's book with a cheaper webcam and using pinch zoom and annotation may do the job. Or in a bright setting, an HD webcam may do the trick. In the past, the rule was the higher the price, the better quality of image. Today, that isn't necessarily so. My conclusion is before you spend out, do your research and consider the fitness of the device for your environment and your value for money. And please talk to your school technical support before you purchase anything. Sometimes devices are not compatible with school networks. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods' screen reader, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Saturday Brunch Show with me, Emma Williams. And I have been interviewing uh, Ryan Wilson, author of... um, Oh, let that be a lesson. Good to speak. Um, I was uh, pausing for a moment because I was looking at my notes. I wanted to link this to what's um, been talked about a lot on Twitter, and it's been in the um, mainstream news as well. Um, What's happened to the author Kate Clanchy, who wrote the book Some Kids I Taught and What They Taught Me. Now, this book was um, awarded the Orwell Prize for Political Writing in 2020. Um, But quite some time ago, I think it was about a year ago, um, a, a reviewer on Goodreads raised some concerns about um, ableist and racist language used in the book. Now, the irony is that it was actually Clanchy herself who shared extracts from this review on Twitter saying this reviewer is is making this up and um, these these terms don't appear in my book. Um, People responded with screenshots from her book, pointing out to her that actually these terms were in her book. Um, I say it's ironic because it was actually so it was actually the author herself that kind of drew attention to this on social media. And um, for those of you that have followed what happened, the rest is history. Well, just this week, um, Clanchy and her publisher have quote unquote parted company by mutual agreement, although as somebody, I think it was in The Guardian, said it sounds a bit more like um, someone's being divorced and the partner agrees. Um, and it, it is, it really has made me think just what a what a gamble it is putting yourself out there when you write this kind of book, because it seems to me that the world is moving so fast that even just within one year, what the publisher and all the reviewers and all the readers, it seemed, thought was fine within a year or two um, people are raising concerns and and, um, taking offense certainly I didn't like some of the words used they seem to me to be um, through ignorance um, more than anything else and the students that she was speaking about have actually been very um, supportive and defensive of the author herself but it really did make me wonder whether um, you know, how Ryan feels about writing this kind of book in the climate that we live in. Now, it is a very funny book, and I want to um, highlight some of the things that really stayed with me. Um, A couple of favourite quotes, um, and you'll have to read it to find out the context. Here's one quote. Happily, the head seems to have forgiven me for cupping his wife's breast. That is an amazing anecdote. So you definitely need to go off and read that. Uh, And then one that will speak to every teacher in the room. 
glue is like gold bullion in schools, which anyone who has been in teaching for any period of time knows is absolutely the case. He describes parents' evening as the world's worst speed dating session, uh, which again uh, will speak to all of us, I'm sure. And he talks about things like what can disrupt your lesson the most, a wasp in the room, or it beginning to snow. So he, uh, the book, as I said to Ryan himself, does read like a series of anecdotes, and um, each chapter is given a title, and you can really kind of dip in and dip out and and pick bits that that interest you. So I think you could even read it out of out of order and and still enjoy the book. So I'd like to share a, a few little clips. This is with um, Ryan's permission. So he did his own reading of his book for Audible. And um, that's often that's often a mistake, I think, because not authors aren't um, voiceover artists and often it's better for them to choose an actor. But I think actually Ryan hasn't made a mistake uh, in reading his own book because actually he has, as you've already heard, he's got a lovely voice. Uh, and I think he really does it justice. So we're going to listen to three different clips um, that give you a flavour of what the book is like. So the first clip talks about an incident that occurred in one of his schools. And, and as I discussed with Ryan, he's worked in some particularly challenging environments, shall we say. And I think this is this clip gives a real illustration of frankly the helplessness of teachers in the face of certain things that happen and once you get to a certain point with behavior that there really is no way back so this is from a chapter entitled food fight food fight the talk of the staff room is a horror story that unfolded at break time there were as usual three or four staff on duty in the canteen. And as usual, it was packed with students queuing to buy drinks and sandwiches, and all the tables were occupied with groups of friends from different years. It's not even really clear who started it, but someone, somewhere, threw a sausage roll at another table. Retaliation came in the form of a cream bun, and in no time the whole thing had escalated into a vision from your nightmares. Kids who have never so much as handed homework in a day late are caught up in it, launching their yogurts across the room with the best of them. The staff stand on the sidelines, shouting hopelessly, this must stop at once, but no one hears and no one complies. Missiles are raining down now. There is barely a child not covered with assorted foodstuffs and the noise levels are quickly moving off the scale. One teacher ducks out to call the cavalry and before long, the whole senior leadership team are staring on in disbelief, treading that fine line between trying to assert their authority whilst avoiding the ignominy of taking a sandwich to the face. The bell rings for the start of the next lesson and a human mass of children file out of the canteen doors with the odd pizza slice sailing over their heads for good measure. Mercifully, I have been on duty on the other side of the school and only see the aftermath as I walk back to my classroom. It often strikes me how schools are microcosms for society as a whole, sharing many of the same challenges, as I survey the fries sliding down the walls and the soft drinks pooling in fizzy puddles on the floor, I'm reminded that order in schools is dependent on students forgetting how substantially they outnumber staff. In schools, as in society, the veneer of civilization that keeps the whole show on the road is remarkably thin. 
so that really made my blood run cold. I haven't experienced anything like that in a school, but it really did make me think about his point. Yes, the students outnumber us and that the way that schools work, the way, as he says, society works, relies upon certain compliance and certain systems. Now, I think the closest I've got to feeling it was on one occasion in the school I was working in, where the school had been closed due to snow and it reopened on um, this particular morning. So everyone was heading into school and then the snow started again. So for the roads, what you had was snowfall on top of what was already there and you basically got sheet ice. Um, now I walk to work, so obviously no matter what the conditions, I always make it into work. And there were a few colleagues who were in similar positions, but every single colleague who was coming in by car didn't make it on time. And that, of course, included all but one. No, I think it did include, actually, it did include the whole of SLT. So not one single member of SLT made it into school. Um, and it was one of those moments where you obviously, again, a lot of the kids live locally, so they're all streaming in through the gates. And you suddenly realise how a school rests on and relies on all those members of staff being in and being in position. So all we were able to do is literally start herding them into the hall because we we had only a tiny handful of our staff in. Obviously, the head was on the phone. You know, she, she knew what was happening. But it was one of those moments where you suddenly think, oh, God, what are we going to do? Um, the school was obviously reclosed, we had to contact, we had to get, start closing the gates and basically start turning students away because it, it wasn't safe. We couldn't supervise all of the children. And it's just one of those moments where you, you, you realize um, how potentially fragile the whole setup is and how it, it, it does rely on compliance and it does rely on everybody being where they need to be at the right time. So I thought that moment in, in Ryan's book was was pretty frightening. <laughs> um, and he doesn't really go into what uh, what happened after that and what the consequences were. I just found myself thinking, how on earth did, did the senior leadership team start unpicking or trying to unpick what had happened and, and respond to it? Um, once again, very glad I'm not in that position. So another clip that I'd really love to play you um, talks about something that again those of us that have been in the profession for a while will definitely recognize and that is fads in teaching and i've seen i think ryan was in the profession for around 10 years long enough um, to see things come and go and he talks about what was considered absolutely essential when he was training and has since gone by the wayside so here is the chapter called Fads. Fads. You might think that the act of communicating an idea to a group of children in such a way that they understand it is a fairly timeless art. Yet what is perceived as good teaching by the powers that be seems to change with the direction of the wind. When I first started out in teaching, the trend was for learning styles. Children were either visual, audio or kinesthetic learners by preference and any lesson worth its salt would have activities to cater for all three. So you might incorporate a flowchart on a PowerPoint slide 
to explain an idea for the visual learners who respond best to what they see. You might plan a peer teaching group session for auditory learners who prefer listening. And you might try and get them up and role-playing a deleted scene from a play for the kinesthetic learners who prefer to learn through doing. The value of catering for different learning styles was imparted in our teacher training sessions by our tutors and in staff meetings by management. After a couple of years, this pillar of lesson planning, this idea we were led to believe was the be-all and end-all of educational achievement, was quietly forgotten about. Next, we were told that a lesson would be a total write-off unless there was an aim on the whiteboard differentiated for what all, most and some students would achieve. So you would have an overarching aim for the lesson, to be able to explain the ways Shakespeare presents Othello as a jealous character, for example. Then you would break it down to all will be able to identify and discuss events in the text which show Othello's jealousy. Most will be able to choose and comment on quotations that describe Othello's jealousy. And some will be able to analyse the connotations of individual words in the quotations to show how Shakespeare has shown Othello's jealousy. There were suggestions that you might quietly go around each child and say whether they should be aiming for the all, most or some objective. Doing all that for five lessons a day represents a not insignificant amount of time and it's not clear that it particularly helps. Then, for a while, teaching became a dirty word. To stand at the front and proclaim was seen as an indulgent, aggrandizing act. The focus was on learning and learners, for even calling them students or children was to take the focus off learning for too long, must discover things for themselves. Everything would be group challenges and research projects and peer learning. Management announced that we should no longer refer to lesson plans, but should talk about learning plans instead. I remember being told by a more senior teacher that any time I found myself speaking to the class, I should ask myself why and stop as soon as possible. References to homework were also banned. It was now home learning. All of this was done with a straight face. Then there was a change of government and all of a sudden, it was completely fine again for teachers to stand at the front and deliver a lesson. Everything that just a few months before would have had you metaphorically taken out and shot was, more or less overnight, entirely fine, even encouraged. And this whole cycle of changing fashions happened over less than a decade. The truth, as I think most teachers would tell you, is that there is good in all of these approaches, but none is the elixir you've been waiting for, the long-desired panacea, even though they are often presented as such. It depends on the class you have, the personalities, the topic you're covering, and a thousand other variables of which teachers are instinctively aware. Sometimes group work fits the bill. Sometimes it makes sense to explain something at length in a lecture style. Other times, you do want to get them up and moving about. My approach, having seen them come and go, is to make a good attempt at each new initiative, but to treat it with a pinch of salt and accept it's probably not the teaching equivalent of the promised land. Absolutely right. <clears throat> and it's particularly funny to hear Ryan, because uh, I think he joined the profession at the sort of height of the vacking um, fad, uh, which of course has now been completely debunked, uh, quite rightly. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I was in the profession um, for the almost and some fad. What a load of nonsense that was. 
Um, and, and as he said, we were supposed to write, get the, write it on the board. And there were lots of uh, t teachers and lots of heads of department who felt that your lesson was not good if you the students didn't write it all down. I mean, some students with poor literacy, the amount they were supposed to write just with the aims and objectives was probably more than, than they would normally write in a lesson. Just absolutely extraordinary. And he's totally right that, of course, Things change dramatically with the change of government um, and certainly Ofsted's expectations have changed. The sorts of things that Ofsted expected to see in the lesson when I first joined the profession have now, thank goodness, uh, been ditched. And I think they do have a better attitude now, which is as long as it works, if, if, you, if the students are making progress and you know, going in the right direction, then there, are, there is no set way uh, that you are expected to teach, which is certainly a move for the better, I would say. So that bit really, really struck home with me. And I think fads is, is absolutely the way to see it. If you stick in the profession long enough, I think one of the, the joys um, about the profession now is more and more of us are gaining that confidence to point, point fingers at what is clearly a fad. And my, my mantra now is show me the evidence. Show me the evidence that this is worth my time. Show me the evidence that this genuinely will impact on students' learning and outcomes, and then I'll do it. But if it doesn't, forget it. But then I'm, I'm quite bullshit. Be bullshit, people. It's important. So the final clip that I want to play you, um, I find quite moving, and, and I, I certainly think he has a point here. So this is from a chapter called In Praise of Eccentrics. And Ryan talks about how he feels that when he was at school, there was room for certain types of eccentric character filled teachers. And that when he joined the profession, there were some like that, but they were, as he puts it, the old guard and he feels that the way the profession is going is that fewer and fewer of these types of eccentrics are allowed, that we're all being asked to teach in a certain way, uh, behave in a certain way, act in a certain way, um, model certain behaviours to the children. And there's all sorts of positives about that, but he feels that something has been lost and I don't know to what extent I agree, but it certainly made me think. So here is my final chunk. Watching Robert teach is nothing short of extraordinary. He marches around the workshop, castigating and praising in equal measure. You're a demon with that sod, Jones. Better not give you a low mark or you might slice me in two. Watkins. What is that? Call that a jewellery box? I wouldn't put my rotten apple core in it. On one occasion, he asks me to cover his form time for him. Basically, turn up, read out the announcements from the daily bulletin, call the register and send the students on their way. I walk through the door of his workshop to find he's written on the board, Mr. Wilson will take form time today, and he, and this was written in even bigger letters, expects silence. That may all sound a little exhausting, but here's the thing, he really cares about the students in his form and his DT classes love his lessons. For all his blustering and shouting, he is a brilliant teacher. His sense of humour means he can turn even the most cack-handed of students into carpenters. He is unconventional, 
but there's no doubt he's one of life's natural teachers. Clements retired after I'd been at the school for a couple of years, and there was a real sense that we had lost one of the old guard. In my experience, the number of eccentric teachers has come down drastically. Schools have changed. Whereas at one time teachers were trusted to get on with their job, there are now appraisals, observations, learning walks and management drop-ins. Teachers are expected to create lesson plans for every lesson, drawing on student data and dividing the learning into phases and stretching the most able while supporting those who struggle most. Large, sponsored academy chains have taken many schools further down the road of privatisation and made them more slick, more corporate. There are reasons for all these things. League tables, funding cuts, forensic inspections and exam pressures mean that schools have had few options but to change. But those things come at a cost. I've seen brilliant colleagues pushed, blinking and disorientated, into an unfamiliar and uncomfortable new world of hyper-accountability. Experienced teachers who have spent years honing their craft are ushered into empty classrooms or offices to be told that, regretfully, they are being put on a capability plan because they haven't made enough use of data or their lesson plans aren't sufficiently detailed. The problem is that eccentric teachers are often brilliant. I'm not saying there aren't duds, there are in any profession, but when I think of my own school days, it's the characters I remember most vividly. I can't call those times to mind without thinking immediately of Mrs Weir, a larger-than-life maths teacher, whose world was so filled with theorems and formulae that she'd never heard of Madonna, but who could make double maths pass in a flash. Or Miss White, the religious education teacher who told the girls not to shine their shoes too much in case they reflect their knickers and lead the boys into temptation. And Mrs Reed, our year five teacher, who would throw our possessions out of the window if we misbehaved. These teachers might not be able to provide a seating plan annotated with the different levels that their students are working at, but they are the inspirers, the ones who make learning effective as well as memorable and fun. And any system which is too inflexible to accommodate them deprives itself of some of the best. It's food for thought, isn't it? I mean, I'm not sure I like the sound of uh, some of Brian's teachers back in Northern Ireland, um, but it certainly did make me think. And it seems like uh, it's had the same impact on some listeners. So Tom Rogers says um, that he agrees. He thinks teaching has got more corporate. And we've got someone else who's joined the show who says, yeah, definitely has got more corporate. I like the research approach. And they also say, I like the science of learning, but I want to put into practice things in my own classroom and not be told exactly what I have to do. Um, and I, I think it's a really difficult one. I really do, because I, I think all of the, the things that, what I would call a quiet revolution, and I think it, a lot of it has been driven through edgy Twitter, I think, the number of teachers that are aware of the sorts of things um, that I've just mentioned, I think that's been driven um, by access through edgy Twitter. And I, I do see it as hugely positive. But I do sometimes find myself wondering about, are we losing something with the with the loss of that eccentricity? Because, as Ryan says, those are the teachers that you remember. Gives me pause to think that the teacher that had most influence on me and defined the subject that I studied at university uh, and that I ended up teaching uh, in some form 
he was certainly an eccentric and I absolutely adored him and hung on his every word. However, looking back, he was a frankly terrible teacher in all sorts of ways because most notably he only taught talked to a small number of us. Um, he had no time, he had no truck um, for, for students who were struggling, for example. So when I look back, I think, uh, I, I still I still worship him personally and I still am grateful to him for what he did for me but when I look back for what he did for the whole class he's not the kind of teacher I want to be so I think it's a really tricky one because all of the things that have come in with what you might say is is a little bit of a more corporate attitude has been about standards uh, has been about giving teachers very specific guidance about how to improve rather than just leaving us to struggle um but i i do share ryan's disquiet that we need to be careful that we don't lose some of the some of the things that um that students love about their teachers um and i think we need to make sure that there's enough room for that and i think there there is and there can be um it doesn't you don't have to lose all personality to teach to the new order i really i really don't think that's the case um you can still be that eccentric um and i think if if that isn't being allowed in a school i would say that is because leadership aren't quite getting it right i don't think anybody should be marched into an office because they're not using data sufficiently i mean that again i wonder if that's perhaps got better since since Ryan has left the profession. I know that leaders that I know uh, online have talked about what they had to do in the past, what that they were forced to discipline members of their department, for example, because they weren't marking books according to the school marking policy, even though their results were incredible. Now, I like to think that that has either gone or is going, because again, I think there's been a shift in if it works fine, we need to reduce workload as long as your results are good who on earth should be telling you that there's a problem with the way that you're doing things i think that um i think it's getting better i hope it is anyway and if it isn't in your school then you need to be pushing for it uh, or maybe thinking about a change of school so what do we have for the rest of today we have joe hammond has his show at one o'clock and then later this evening we have miss Sade, who's running the late show at eight o'clock so two more live shows to come this saturday so do make sure that you tune into those if you can or um, don't forget that you can always listen on catch up if you can't do those slots so i'm going to close my show here as always it's been an absolute joy Thank you to my guest, Ryan Wilson, who has been an absolute joy to speak to. And I will look forward to being here with you again next week on Teachers Talk Radio. But for now, take very great care and have a wonderful weekend. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time.
on Teachers Talk Radio.